Good morning. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Justin Beam, and it's a real privilege to be with you this morning. The Island of Misfit Toys. I hope that was not the first time you had ever seen that. Good. Good. Wasn't it good to have the Lord's Supper together this morning? Communion for misfits like us, right? I'd be remiss if I didn't mention on this particular day a misfit from church history. Today is officially St. Nicholas Day. Did you know this? We don't typically celebrate it here in this country. I do in my house. I mean, it's more chocolate and a few extra presents. Why not? But we do. We celebrate it. We celebrate it on the 5th. But the actual day is the 6th. Today is St. Nicholas Day. And you talk about a misfit. And you know St. Nicholas. St. Nicholas, who's the Bishop of Myra, and he's best known for giving gifts to children and helping the orphans and his great benevolence. And of course, this is the beginning of Santa Claus. But just a little tidbit of church history about St. Nicholas, the very same guy. Back in 325 AD, there was a church council called the Council of Nicaea. And long story short, they formulated the Nicene Creed, which is this very wonderful, if you ever get a chance, read it, wonderful statement of the person and work of Christ. And they were hashing out the doctrine of the Trinity and the natures of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man. There was a heretic at the assembly whose name was Arius. And Arius was going on and on, denying the deity of Christ, messing up the doctrinal relationship between the Father and the Son. The same St. Nicholas, look this up, I'm not kidding. He got so angry while Arius was speaking, he got up and went over and slapped him in the face. This is known in some Christian circles as the Santa slap. I'm not kidding. And we go, well, I know why St. Nick should be on the island of misfit toys. He's got an anger problem. He really did that. Praise God. There'll be a motley crew there in heaven, won't there? We're all misfits in one way or another. Let me pray for us before we dig into the scriptures. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you love us despite all of our issues and problems. Lord, we're broken sinners. We don't work right. But we praise you, Lord, that in your Son all has been made right. We thank you so much that we can gather together as the body of Christ. We pray that you'd be with us now by your Spirit as we look into your Word, that it would penetrate our hearts. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Island of Misfit Toys. If you want a book, not on the Island of Misfit Toys, but if you want a book filled, chalked full of misfits, you have one right here. It's called the Bible. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. And I don't want to hear any sighs when you see what I'm going to be reading. <laughs> oh no, a genealogy, a bunch of names. They mean nothing to me. I can't even pronounce this stuff. Why are we going to stay with me? 
This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Remember her, Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nation, Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, remember Rahab, Tamar, Rahab, there's a few more, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, remember Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. And of course, we know her as who? Bathsheba. But you notice, Matthew doesn't say Bathsheba. He reminds us right on the face of it, you know, Uriah's wife, not his own. We'll get back to that in a second. And if you're anything like me, when you read a genealogy, and if you were honest, and I'll be honest with you, when I'm reading through the Bible and I come to these genealogies, I go, oh man, is this really inspired? I mean, why did God put this here? I can't even pronounce these names. I don't know these people, and yet here they are, and they're part, they're this, it's the same scripture throughout the Bible. The same God that wrote John 3.16 wrote, and so-and-so begot so-and-so, begot so-and-so, and you go, what? why is this here? I can't get anything out of this. This morning, I want to briefly just look at the four women who are mentioned in this genealogy at the very beginning of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we briefly look at these four women, I want you to ask yourself this question. If you were picking a family tree for the greatest man who ever lived, our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were picking a family tree for the greatest man who ever lived, would you put these people in that family tree? And, and ask yourself that as we go through this. The first woman that, woman that um, Matthew mentions is Tamar. She was the Canaanite girl, way back in Genesis 38. She was the Canaanite girl who married Judah's oldest son, Onan. No, the oldest son is Ur. We'll get to Onan in a second. She married Ur. Now, this is Judah, as in the tribe of Judah. Judah's son, Ur. All we know about Ur is that he was so wicked that God killed him. That's all we know. And now she's in a jam, and there's this thing in the Old Testament called leveret marriage. And we won't go into depth this morning, but what it does, or what it did, was it protected widows. Because when you, if you were a woman and you got married and left your father's house, you were out of that family and into the new one. If your husband died and you were a widow, you need some way of staying connected to your in-laws, because they're your provision, they're your safety. And so in leveret marriage, if the oldest son marries a girl, in this case, Ur married Tamar, if the oldest son dies, the next son in line, the second oldest son, marries the widow and gives her children so that she is taken care of and brought into the family. She's kept in the family. She has links to the family. 
And so she marries Onan. Onan was so wicked, he refused to give Tamar a baby. And this angered God so much that he killed him too. If you want to read all the details, Genesis chapter 38. You can do that on your own time. So Judah sees all this happening, and he's got another son on the roster, Shelah. And he goes, probably, he's looking at Tamar and going, well, I don't know if I want another one of my sons to marry this girl. It doesn't work out so well. He holds back, and this is an evil thing that he's doing. He holds back his third son, Shelah. And, and at this point in the story, Judah is a total reprobate. He is a wicked, godless evil man. And he's thinking all wrong. The reason God killed the first two sons was because they were wicked. Had nothing to do with Tamar. So he holds his son back and Tamar, in shame, is sent back to her father. So here's Tamar's workaround because she has to get connected to a family in order to be provided for, in order to have a future. And this really happened. She finds out that Judah is taking a trip somewhere. So what she does is she goes and dresses up like a prostitute. And she waits on the side of the road where Judah, her father-in-law, is going to be traveling by. And so what happens? Judah takes the trip. He goes down this road. He sees what he thinks is a prostitute. And he says... And this is the character of Judah coming out. He says, oh, well, I think I'll transact some business here. Long story short, Tamar becomes impregnated with twins through her father-in-law, Judah. One of the twins' names is Perez. Perez is directly in the line of Christ. Is this the kind of person, is this the kind of family... Is this the kind of messed up family drama? And you guys know about that, right? You just had Thanksgiving. (laughs) Is this the kind of person you would put in God's family tree? The next woman, Rahab. Probably this is Rahab from Jericho. Do you remember her story? Rahab was a Canaanite woman. So right off the bat, she has no place with the people, with the covenant people of God. She's an outsider. She's a Gentile. She's a Canaanite. And she's in the city that God is about to destroy. Remember her story? Canaanite woman in Jericho. She didn't pretend to be a prostitute. She was a prostitute in real life. That's how she made her living before she came to put her faith in God. And it's a beautiful story. You remember what happens. She puts her faith in the salvation of the God of the Israelites, and Joshua spares her. And God doesn't just save her, you remember. He folds her right into the community of faith. And then Rahab goes on to a great and high honor. She is one of only two women in all of church 
history in all of Holy Scripture to be inducted into Faith's Hall of Fame. Hebrews chapter 11, the Hall of Fame of Faith. There's only two women mentioned. Rahab is one of them. Isn't that wonderful? If you were picking the family tree for the greatest man who ever lived, would you put Rahab the prostitute into the tree? Next woman is Ruth. Now, Ruth doesn't give us any signs of huge, blatant public moral failures, but Ruth is out from the word go. She is a Moabitess. God had put a special curse on Moabites. I'll let you read that for yourselves. Deuteronomy chapter 23. God would not permit a Moabite to enter the assembly of the Lord. And yet look what God did with her. She is given the high honor of being in the family tree of Jesus Christ. And the last woman, Matthew doesn't even say her name. He just says, Uriah's wife. And instead of, if we were writing the genealogy, we'd be like, yeah, don't talk about that. Just say David was the father of Solomon and move on. Matthew, by inspiration of the Spirit, does what? He says, no, it wasn't just some woman. It wasn't his own wife. It was Uriah's wife. And you remember that story, don't you? King David fell into lust. It was on his roof. It was night. He watched a beautiful woman take a bath who wasn't his wife. She was a married woman. He sent for her. They committed adultery together. She became pregnant. And then you remember... He tried to cover it up, so he brought her husband, Uriah the Hittite, home on military leave so that it would look like Uriah had come home and they had had a baby and everything's fine. And Uriah is too good a man. He's too godly. Remember him? He says, I won't, I won't go spend the night with my wife. I appreciate that you brought me home, but I can't do it. My troops are in the field. There's a war on, and I, I can't do that to them. I, I need to go back. And so David commits first-degree murder, and he uses the Israelite army to kill Uriah, tactically. And here's Bathsheba mixed into all of this. Is this the kind of person you would have included in the family tree of the greatest man who ever lived? And make no mistake, what Matthew is doing here at the beginning of this gospel is he's stating very clearly that the earthly father of Jesus, Joseph, is from the right line. He has the right descendant tree so that his child can be the Messiah. Because we find out that he's from Judah, and he's from the right town, Bethlehem, and Joseph is linked into this. And he's making sure to let us know. But I think sometimes we come to these genealogies and we kind of like look at them from a distance. Do you know what I mean? We read the names and we kind of go, well, yeah, those are good people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, you know, that's great. That's good. Those must be good names. But I think that if we get up close to the list 
a whole other picture starts to come into focus. I mean, to say that some of these women had checkered pasts is a bit of an understatement, don't you think? These were misfits of the first degree. And there was family drama and brokenness and deceit and adultery and murder and incest even in there. We would never pick these people to be in the family tree of our Lord Jesus Christ. But God did. And he did it on purpose. It wasn't mistakes. God chose this. This was Jesus' family tree. And the truth is, we could go on all morning and, 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 and you know, forget just looking at the ladies. We could go on all morning looking at these guys. I mean, the patriarchs, you go back and read, they're a bunch of sinners. Jacob is the epitome of the word shikester. I mean, you talk about a crafty, deceitful, self-absorbed, broken, messed up dude. That would be Jacob. Judah, we've already mentioned, a total reprobate prior to his conversion. And his conversion is a beautiful story. Read it at the end of Genesis. David, Solomon, all misfits. And we've we got to ask ourselves, why in the world would the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ start like this? And then why would it continue on like this? As Jesus grows up and becomes a man and starts his ministry, who are the people that he's associated with? You, if we were writing the story, we'd clean it all up. Well, then Jesus went into the synagogue and he hung out with the theologians and the righteous. And the, Who does Jesus hang out with the rest of his life? Bunch of sinners. Corrupted traitor IRS agents. Yeah. Except worse, because you were actually betraying Israel by colluding with the Romans. Who else does he hang out with? More prostitutes, lepers, cripples, poor, destitute, sick, Gentiles, Samaritans, women, who at this point in history are like second-class citizens. Jesus just surrounds, his whole life story is filled with these people. They're always around. Why would God do that? Have you ever thought about that at Christmas time? Why would God do that? I think the answer is really, really simple. God loves misfits. He loves them. He loves the unlovely and the dirty and the disreputable and the broken and the losers and all those people who are so unfit for his family and unfit for heaven. He loves hookers and shikesters and lowlifes. And it's these very ones, these misfits, that he makes fit. 
to share in the glory of his own son. In a way, what Matthew is telling us is that even before he's born, Jesus associates himself with misfits and sinners. Gentile sinners like us. And so from page one, from the opening genealogy, the gospel becomes a very humbling thing, doesn't it? Because the gospel then and the gospel now is never for people who come to God and say, Oh God, I have done so well. I deserve to be part of your family. And I deserve good things from you. And I deserve an inheritance. And you know, I've really done pretty good with those Ten Commandments. And you should let me in. The gospel's never for those people. The gospel's for people who come to God and say what? I am a wicked, depraved sinner. I'm a misfit. I'm unfit for your heaven. I'm messed up. Family stuff, work stuff, marriage stuff. I'm a big sinner. And I need your mercy. Oh, if you can say that, then you're either already a Christian or you're this close to the kingdom of God. And no one understood this better than the probable writer of this gospel, Matthew himself. Because Matthew was one of those traitor IRS agents that everyone groaned when I said that. Everyone groaned, oh, the IRS. Matthew, he's one of those kind of sinners. Briefly, turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. Read the account of the conversion and calling and discipleship, the beginning of the discipleship of a man called Matthew. Matthew 9, verse 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him. He was a big sinner, and his friends were big sinners. Came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. And quickly, when Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, and I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners, he's not saying that, well, there is actually a group out there that's healthy. 
or there is actually out there a group that's not sinful. He's saying to them, if you can't see your own sin, if you can't see your own misfitness, your unfitness for heaven, then I will be of no use to you. I'm here for the sick. I'm here for the sinners. Because in reality, we're all misfits, aren't we? Every last single one of us in this room. We all have stuff that we would rather not talk about. Thought and word and deed and drama and family stuff and adultery. And famous passage in Romans chapter 3, and you don't have to turn there, you can just just to cement this into our minds, that we're all misfits. There's not one of us fit for heaven. The Apostle Paul, in his systematic laying out of the gospel in the book of Romans, he sums up every single human being who has ever lived besides our Lord Jesus Christ in a huge indictment. And he says, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, this is you. So here's this, and it describes us well, if we're honest. Listen, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is the indictment against humanity. Everyone's a misfit. Have you forgotten about Jesus' family tree? A family tree full of misfits, full of sinners, big sinners. Remember why he came at Christmas time. It wasn't so good people could find their way into God's family. From the opening words, from the genealogy, we find that the gospel was for bad people like us, misfits like us, that we could be cleansed of all our filthy sin and be adopted into God's family. Isn't that wonderful? And one word of warning here, if you think that this isn't you, and you're sitting here and you're going, you know what, that's great, Jesus and God, they love hookers, and they love people who commit incest, and they love murderers, and they love IRS agents. That's great. And some of you could be sitting here and going, you know, but that's not me. I never killed anybody. I never slept with another man's wife. Well, Jesus handled that. Remember, he preached on the Ten Commandments. What did he say? If you even looked at her with lust in your heart, you broke that one. You committed adultery. If you were angry with your brother in your heart 
if you went out and said all kinds of bad things about him. You broke the commandment not to commit murder. If you ever had an idol, and that doesn't have to be a statue, if you've ever loved anything more than God, if you've ever worshipped anything higher than what you worship God, the Old Testament has a huge indictment on that. God's constantly coming to His people and saying, you've played the harlot with the idols of the other nations. No one escapes this. We're misfits, but oh, if you've put your faith in the Son of God, the greatest man who ever lived, you've been folded into the family. Just like these ladies in Matthew. You know, the cool thing about heaven, you're going to see some really crazy stuff. You're going to see people there. And you're going to say, how in the world did this person get here? Walk up to Rahab. Ask her when you get there. Did you deserve this? You know what she'll say? Are you kidding me? No. You read, I'm in the Bible. You read about me. I was a prostitute. And if you went up to someone like Tamar and said, do you deserve this? She's going to say, no way, man. Did you read about the drama in my family? What I did? What my family did? And if we walk up to each other, and we say, do you deserve to be here? Our answer should be just the same as theirs. No. Maybe you didn't know. Maybe you did. I was just a big sinner. I wasn't fit for this place. But God made it so. In a real sense, heaven will be like a big family reunion for misfits. You ever think about this? The misfit family reunion. People like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. People like you and me. People like the Apostle Paul, who persecuted, ripped Christians right out of their homes because he thought he was doing something good and persecuted them. Some of the worst sinners you could ever think of will be there. Why will they be there? Because God loves misfits. And he sent Christ for misfits like us. A great big family reunion of misfits. I'll see you at the party.